We all have tales we tell ourselves, of which we are the hero. But what if Jesus became the subject? How would that change the way our stories unfolded? If the savior of the world was our focus, every tale we told had Jesus as the main character, and every plot twist was part of a cosmic narrative, a narrative that guided our lives and dictated our decisions. From nativity to humanity, his story led from king to cross, a heroic journey from a humble servant to a holy sacrifice, calling and leading, healing and revealing. And now he is our guide, through every act and scene, not as a figure of the past, but present through to our future. Leading us through every peak and valley, and holding our hand through every cliffhanger. All we must do is let him take the lead and reign as king in the center of our story. Good morning, Cornwall Church. It is good to see you. Good to have you here. Those of you who are joining us in Skagit, so glad that you're uh, with us today. I look forward to seeing you on Wednesday night. I'll be down there with you on the refuge. And those of you in Boca Raton at the Trinity Church of God, as always, it's good to have you join us. Or those of you online, I'm excited for us today as we get to look into God's Word and understand and fall more in love with the one who is the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and that is Jesus, and Jesus is our subject. That's our series that we've been in for these weeks leading up to Easter, looking through the book of Mark at Jesus and his ministry, his life, and his message. And he starts off his ministry, and he begins this big movement of the kingdom of God with this one message that we've seen that from the very beginning. He said, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Read the highlighted part with me. Repent and believe the good news. Just six words. Read it again. Repent and believe the good news. Those are just six words. I'm going to ask you later. They won't be written up here, but it's going to be a quiz. I'm telling you the answer, how to get an A, six words. Jesus says, repent, turn away from and turn toward something that is good news. It's this thing, the same word of gospel. And this good news was amazing. In fact, the good news that he came to bring was better than people even understood when he told them. I mean, it was like culture crushing and tradition trashing and law liberating and covenant fulfilling good news. It was so good, it was so new, it was so fresh, it was so revolutionary, even the disciples missed it most of the times. There were times when Jesus would pull them aside and they would say, explain to us what you're talking about. They didn't get it. There'd be other times he would pull them aside and say, let me explain what I'm talking about. And they didn't get it. There'd be these times, and and you know he had a good enough relationship where he could just be honest with them. Like in Mark chapter 7 where he says this to them, are you so dull? I mean, he's like, he lays it all out for him and goes, really guys? You're missing it? And at the end of the passage we're going to look at today in in Mark chapter 8, he says this, do you still not understand? Got nothing here. Pops and buzzes. It just goes right over the top of their heads. And I think that there were times when Jesus would lay it out and he was just going, come on, it's plain as day. It was so unbelievably good. Now, if you were with us last week, we looked at this whole idea of how they were eating with, with unclean, unclean hands, ceremonially unclean hands. And Jesus explained that to them. But that was just at the surface level. I think what, what he was getting at was something far greater, that Jesus is revealing a deeper truth 
they, they barely understand it on the surface level that he's talking about the traditions of the elders and all the rules and regulations. He's saying, that, yeah, that's, that's the example, but there's a deeper truth behind this, and you're missing it completely, and other people missed it completely as well. And yet he would, he would reveal these, these deeper truths to them. He's revealing something that's, that's far greater than just the event that they're talking about, something that is far more significant, far more fundamental and foundational, far more eternal. And today, again, we're gonna see where Jesus does some things, and we can take it at the surface level and learn a lot. But I think what he's really trying to exp explain to us is something far deeper. So I mentioned last week that I'm very excited about today's sermon. And that's part of it is because I'm a Bible geek and some of the stuff we're going to be doing here. This is one of those sermons that maybe it's more of a teaching than a sermon, but it's got a lot of strings that in my mind all connect. They don't always work here, but in here they do. And so this is going to be one of those where we've got a lot of these strings, and I think that they all connect and tie up at the end and say, Jesus. And with that, uh, we're going to be looking at a lot of different things. So I hope you're well caffeinated. I hope you're wide awake, well rested. Because while we're going to spend the majority of our time in Mark chapter 8, we're going to be touching down on Mark chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, and we're even going to jump ahead for just a minute at the very end into Mark chapter 11. And if you've been reading the book of Mark, if you've been studying this on your own, and you know we haven't been able to cover everything, what is, I hope is going to happen is that there are going to be some dots that are connected, some different events that you've read, some different events that you've studied, some different events that you know about, and you never thought that they were necessarily related. And I hope that you see how all these dots start connecting, that Jesus had this example, and that we will pull back a layer from just the surface level story and event and truth, and we will discover a deeper truth and pull back another layer. In fact, I'm going to pull back so many layers, we're going to get to what I think is truth, but it might be heresy. I'm just warning you in advance. There's some stuff that I may have to answer to Jesus from. He may say, you remember what you taught in March of 2019? Yeah, that's not what I meant in the Bible. But, so, but here's the deal. I trust your discernment and the Holy Spirit to work us through all of this. So I, I hope, are, are, you, are you ready for this one? Okay, some of you are going to love this. Some of you are going to be going, what time does Christ the King start again? All right, so... Here's where we're going to go. Uh, last week, uh, we saw, and through this series, we saw that Jesus would teach this, this revolutionary teaching that was so subversive. In fact, it was like, like just utterly disregarding the traditions of the elders that they had held on to for hundreds of years. Absolutely disdaining these traditions. And it riled up these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, and Jesus recognizes that they're very upset and he needs to kind of maybe let the, let the dust settle a little bit. You may also remember, and I just hit this briefly, is that he had just come through a very emotionally draining event. His relative, John the Baptist, had been executed. It was wrong. It was, it was, it was just, there was injustice. It was horrible. It was evil. And you know that that had to have been draining on him just emotionally. But he's been on this constant run. In fact, he tried to get his disciples to go away for a little soul care, get away. And the people followed him. And, and they were still just pouring out and giving. So there's this, this drain, this heaviness that he's had. There's all this, this ongoing just time with people, and he needs to break away, as well as letting the dust settle with these Pharisees and the teachers of the law. So in Mark chapter 7, we see this really interesting verse when it says this, Jesus left that place, the Capernaum, northern Galilee area, and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. Here's a little bit of a geography lesson. 
Tyre, uh, the city of Tyre, is north of, of uh, Israel. It's up uh, in today what we would call Lebanon, and it's right on the coast. What is also interesting is that in chapter 7, and chapter 8, and a little bit in chapter 9, it's the only recorded time where we see Jesus going out of the region of Palestine, the region of Israel. So he goes up to this city, Tyre, which is on the Mediterranean Sea, north, and it's not a, Je a Jewish settlement. There are no Jewish people there. There are only Gentile people there. Jewish people would not go there because, because it is a, a, a Jewish people wouldn't go there because it was an unclean city with unclean people. So there's a couple questions that come to my mind with this right away. Why on earth would a Jewish rabbi choose to go out of Israel up to this Gentile area to this town called Tyre. The other question is this. It says that he kind of wanted to be, you know, like anonymous, but he couldn't keep his presence secret. How do these people even know about him? I mean, how is it that these, these Gentile people that are not from Jerusalem, they're not from Nazareth, they're not from Capernaum, they're not from Israel, they don't care about the Torah and the law, they don't care about some homeless, traveling, itinerant rabbi from Nazareth. They don't care. How do they know about him? And hopefully we'll kind of get some answers to both of those questions. So you might say, well, but didn't you just say Jesus and his guys need to get away? Yeah, and maybe that was part of it, kind of a beach day getaway. Guys retreat. Here we go, up to the beach. I mean, what's not to love? You're on the sea of the, uh, the Mediterranean Sea. But it's not just a weekend getaway. Because then it says this. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon. Sidon's even farther north. So he's going farther away from, from Galilee, farther away from Israel, deeper into this territory. And not only that, then it says, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. Decapolis, deck, like, like decathlon or um, decade. Deck means... 10. Apollos like a city. So the Decapolis was this conglomeration of 10 cities, 10 Roman cities. Roman cities were all built the same. There's a theater, there's the Cardo, it runs north and south, there's the public bathhouse, there's all this stuff. Um, and, and all of these, nine of these uh, Decapolis cities were on the, on the east side of the Jordan River. The one on the west side, uh, Bet Shean, uh, we visit that every time we go to Israel a, a year from now, we'll visit it again is these amazing ruins of these Roman cities. Now here's again what's interesting, is that Jewish people didn't go to the Roman cities. I mean, the Romans, they were the enemy. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, referred to these cities and these people as our bitter enemy. Not only that, but there was this, this national um, and, and even ethnic prejudice against them. They were the Gentiles. They would refer to them with this derogatory term as dogs. Now, we'll use that as kind of a fun jab. You know, oh, you dog, you dog, you dog me. Hey, what's up, dog? That's not how they use the word dog. They use it in a very derogatory, it was like, you maggot-infested roadkill. It was like the lowest that you could get. And they just thought, thought these people were just, there was such a prejudice, such a, a racial and a national and a, and a cultural uh, prejudice against them. But the one that was the most was the religious, spiritual aspect of it. These people were not followers of the Torah. They were not God's people. They were not his chosen people. They were unclean. These people were lawless, immoral, idolatrous, pagan people. So why would Jesus go there? And what's even more amazing, when you think about this, 
You see how low they were morally and spiritually. Jesus even uses their immoral reputation to kind of say, this is how low the bar is set. In Matthew, he says this, woe to you, Chorazim, woe to you, Bethsaida, if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, there's those two cities, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. He's saying, they're like the worst of the worst, but they would have repented. You see, these people are far from God. And why is it that they even know who Jesus is? Before he performs any miracles, because he will. Before he does any teaching, because he will. Before any of that, they know who he is. How could that be? Well, one thought is this. In a story that we passed over in, in Mark chapter five, Pastor Kip referenced it. There's a man, uh, he goes by the, the moniker Legion. That's not his name, it's kind of a, uh, it's just kind of what he goes by. And this guy has had a lot of evil influence in his life. In fact, he's filled with demons. And he runs around naked in cemeteries, kind of like some of your uncles. Uh, this guy's way out of control, no one can control him. He goes by the name Demon, because there's all these, uh, by Legion, because there's all these demons. And he has this encounter with Jesus, and Jesus cast the demons into the pigs. Some of you are familiar with that story. And suddenly this man, he's got his mind back. He's, he's, he's dressed and in his right mind. It's, it's a complete transformation. And he begs Jesus, it says in, in Mark 5. He begs Jesus, let me go with you. Let me follow you. And Jesus says, no, you go back to your family and tell them all that the Lord has done for you and how merciful he's been to you. And in Mark chapter 5, it says, So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, the ten cities, how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. This is a one-man revival on a ten-city tour where he just goes around saying, You guys, you've got to meet this guy, Jesus. And they're going, Aren't you the man formerly known as Legion? Aren't you the naked guy? It's like, can you, can you give me something more than that? He says, Listen, forget about my, my name and how I used to run around and stuff. This guy, Jesus, and he just went around telling about Jesus over and over again. So by the time Jesus comes there, you can imagine they're going, we heard about you. The man, the naked, the former naked man, formerly known as Legion, he told us about you. So there's already this awareness of this man, this rabbi named Jesus, and he comes into this, into this community, into this area. And when he's there, he performs three miracles. Again, why would he do this? One of them is with a Syrophoenician woman and her daughter. Again, she's got like culturally, religiously, three strikes against her. She's a female, which a a Jewish rabbi would not associate with. She's from Syria. She's Syrian and Phoenician. Her daughter is demon-possessed, but Jesus does a miracle. Another one is that he heals a man who's deaf and has a hard time uh, speaking. And then he does this massive miracle with a huge crowd. Why would Jesus be there, and why would he do this? All right, I told you there'd be a six-word quiz. Here it is. His message was summed up in these six words. Repent, turn towards something, and believe this good news, this gospel. And what he's, I think, the reason he's in the Decapolis, the reason he went to Tyre, the reason he went to Sidon, the reason he does these miracles, the reason he's even there is when Jesus says, repent and believe the good news, this gospel, it's a gospel of inclusion, not exclusion. 
It's a gospel that includes people, doesn't exclude them. In essence, what he's saying is the good news isn't just for the Jews. The good news is for all of yous. That, that's how they say it in New York. It's not for the Jews. It's for all of yous. So he says this is for everybody. This isn't just for the Jewish people. This is now for everybody. All right. So that's kind of some backdrop of where he is. Where I want us to go now is to look, uh, is to look at a miracle that Jesus does, two of them. Um, one of them, again, I referenced this last week, is found in Mark chapter 6. We, we passed over it. It's probably one of the most well-known and famous miracles that Jesus has ever done, the feeding of the 5,000. Many of you have heard of this. What's interesting about the feeding of the 5,000, it's the only miracle, save the resurrection, that appears in all four Gospels. All four Gospels, this is the only miracle except for the resurrection of Christ. This is the only one that appears in all four. And so there's this feeding of the 5,000. What some of you are not aware of is that this miracle has like a, a sister miracle, like a, a double first cousin miracle. Another miracle that's very similar. In fact, some of you have read it and thought, okay, that's probably the same thing. They just kind of got it mixed up. But there's another, you know, like miracle meal uh, type of a, a miracle that he does. Uh, before we get into that, when I was a little kid, and I had to go to the dentist or the doctor's office. The best part for me as a little kid about going to the dentist or the doctor's office was in the waiting room, there was a thing called Highlights Magazine. <laughs> Any of you ever read Highlights Magazine? Yeah, my subscription just ran out last week. Um, <laughs> Highlights Magazine. And I would always go through, because in Highlights Magazine, they would have these compare pictures. Like two pictures side by side, and at first glance, they're identical pictures, but then part of the whole puzzle is saying, okay, one of them's got some stuff that's not in the other one. You, you guys follow what I'm saying, right? So what I want us to do today with these two miracles is kind of like that highlights compare picture. I want us to look at these two miracles and see what do they have in common, and where, where are they different, and is there anything to any of that? The first one, and, and I'll give you kind of some of it, I'll just summarize and some of it we'll read. And I just want to do them side by side here on this chart. So the first one um, is the, the one that's so familiar. It's found in Mark chapter 6. In fact, if you want to fact check me on any of this, Mark 6, Mark 8 is kind of where we're going to be. In the first miracle, uh, what we have is that Jesus is in, um, is in the north. He's in Galilee, probably in Bethsaida. And the people that are there, they're all Jews. All right? And as he's there on, the, on the, the, the shores of the Sea of Galilee, on the north side with the Jews, it says that there was a very large crowd. And as they were there, he was teaching them, and they've been with him all day. Wherever they were exactly, Scripture says it's a very remote area, so there's not any towns anywhere near, so they're kind of out in the middle of nowhere, and there's a bit of a problem they have no food. And in this situation, Jesus has compassion. Not the disciples. The disciples say, Jesus, send them home. Get them out of here. We don't have anything. Jesus has compassion. And then Jesus kind of assesses the situation and finds out, what do we have to feed them? Here's a little quiz for those of you who are raised in Sunday school. What did they have? Okay, well, let's get a little more specific. There were five loaves and there were two fish. And then Jesus has this large crowd of Jewish people who've been with him all day and they're hungry. He has them all 
sit down. Now let's read. Mark chapter 6. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Jesus does something interesting uh, here with this. He took it. He gave thanks. He broke it. And then he gave it to his disciples and they distributed it. And then it says everyone was satisfied. In fact, the word here is actually satiated, like Thanksgiving full, like all you can eat full. And then at the end of it all, they pick up 12 baskets of leftovers and there are 5,000 men. Okay, that's our story. Now, this will remind you of school. Reader retention. You've just read the story. We'll see how much you retain. The answers are all over up here. Here's the quiz. At this miracle, how many men were there? Boom. And there were how many loaves? Got it. And how many basketfuls left over? Good. All right. Not bad at all. You're, you're doing really, really well so far. Now, a, a little bit later, in Mark chapter 8, there's a different story of a very similar miracle. Only this time, it's not to the north, it's more in the southeast. It's in the, it's in the Decapolis, in the ten cities. And it's not Jews who are there, it's Gentiles. So already you see there's a difference. There's Gentiles. But Mark 8 says specifically that there was a large crowd and that they had been with Jesus three days. Hmm. Three days. A three-day story. That seems familiar. Three days. Three-day story. It escapes me, but I'll get it by Easter. <laughs> They've been there for three days. And it also says that they are in a remote area. And as is the case, as they've all been out there on this festival, they now have no food. And Jesus, not the disciples, Jesus has compassion. So he assesses the situation and says, what do we have? And he finds they have seven loaves and a few fish, three or better. And he has all of these people sit down. Let's read it in Mark chapter 8. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present. So he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and everyone was satisfied. The word here, satiated, satis, 
satisfied. All you can eat. And they picked up seven baskets. And how many people? About, it's good. About 4,000. All right, just want to be on me. Okay, reader retention. About how many men were here? Boom. Little side one, this one isn't on the quiz. What nationality were these or what? Okay, good, good, good. How many loaves? Perfect. And how many baskets left over? Okay. So you see that there's a lot of similarities. You say, well, Jesus found something that worked. And he says, I'm pragmatic. Let's just stick with it. We'll go town to town. They've never seen this before. It works. Maybe. But maybe there's something else here. And maybe there's something deeper here. And one of the things that just obviously jumps off the page at me with this, that I don't think the disciples were even picking up on, is the fact that Jesus does not treat the Gentiles any different than he treats the Jews. No Jewish rabbi lived that way. No Jewish person lived that way. No one lived that way. Jesus treats the Gentiles and the Jews exactly the same. He sees the desperation of their situation. He's moved with compassion, which leads him to action, resulting in satisfaction for both. And I think Jesus is like, guys, do, do you see where we're going with this? Now hold on to that. We're going to come back to this. But right following this, the Pharisees come. We're going to just skim over this. You can read it on your own in, in Mark 8. The Pharisees come, and they try to trick Jesus. They try to back him into a corner, and he's like, come on, guys. We're not doing this again. Verse 13, we move on. Then he, that's Jesus, left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread. Except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. And who knows how long that loaf has been in the boat. It's like they have, like, guys, come on. There were like doggy bags waiting. We get in the boat, there's 13 of them out on this lake, and they're hungry. It's like, who brought the bread? What? Wait, what? Peter? No, hey, no. Matthew? What? Bartholomew? We got no bread. We got one loaf. It's good for bait. It's been sitting here for who knows how long. And as they're, they're all frustrated because there's nothing to eat, they're out on this lake, Jesus says to them something strange. He says, watch out, be aware, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Okay. <laughs> all right. <sighs> Verse 16. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. <laughs> and I think Jesus is just rolling his eyes like, how long, Lord? <laughs> Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them. You can just see this like, come on, guys. Seriously? Fellas, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Guys, is there anyone home in the boat here? Did any of you catch this at all? And then says, he gives them a quiz. Guys, don't you remember 
Now let's take the quiz before they do. All right? We'll see how, how sharp we are here. In the first miracle, how many men? Yeah, just yell out the numbers because you'll be right. And what kind of men were these? Yeah, right. I thought you were going to say hungry, but you're right. Jews. And in the first miracle, how many loaves did they have? Five loaves. And how many baskets left over? In the second miracle, roughly, how many men were there? And what kind of men were they? <laughs> Hungry, yeah. You guys are sharp. And how many loaves were there? And how many baskets were there? All right. Now let's just see how they do with this quiz. So Jesus says to them, guys, 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 don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, and he asked him, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And they answered correctly, 12. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And they answered, seven. And Jesus said, do you still not understand? Seriously, guys, you still don't get it. And I think the obvious surface level is, oh, 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 I got it, Jesus, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. You can do all that. So if we only have one loaf, you can do the bread trick for us. Oh. He says, you don't get it, do you? And while that's true, I think what he's trying to help them see is that there is something so much deeper that they're missing, so much more significant, so much foundational to the salvation of the world. Now, here's where I want to push a pause. And I want to be very, very careful in this next section because this is where it could go a little too far to where Jesus will someday say, Bob, yeah, that, you just needed to edit that out of your sermon. And I want to be careful because sometimes, sometimes, especially, hear me all the way out, especially pastors and teachers and evangelists who are really, really heavy on end times prophecies, they'll do this thing that's referred to as eisegesis where they read into a text something that actually isn't in there. And especially with end times prophecies, there's all the symbolism and all the numbers and they assign this and all these things happen. And so they've got it all worked out. I mean, you've heard the stories of pastors who've got it figured out to the day, take their whole church out on the hill to wait for Jesus to come back. And that was 25 years ago. When I was a sophomore in high school, I went to a Christian high school. I had a Bible teacher in my sophomore year. He was so into end times prophecy. He was convinced that the statue in the book of Daniel, that the 10 toes on the statue would be the 10, the 10 countries of the European Union. And there was, as soon as there were 10 countries that joined the European Union, it would be lights out. In fact, he stood in front of our class and he says, I guarantee you Jesus will come back before you graduate from high school. And I said, why are we here then? Here's the problem. Do you know how many countries are in the European Union today? 28, there's a lot of toes, it didn't happen, okay? So they're trying to assign numbers. Some of you will remember when Ronald Wilson Reagan became president. How many letters in the word Ronald? How many in Wilson? How many in Reagan? Six, six, six. 
Oh, here he is. He is here. Some of you realize when I became Pastor Robert Marvel. Oh, my. It's happening. Just count the numbers. So I want to be very, very careful on this. With that said, could it be, could it be that when Jesus is saying to his disciples, this quiz, do you not understand that could this be what he was saying? In the first miracle that was attended by Jews, the chosen people of God, those who are set apart for his purposes, there were 12 baskets, and yes, the obvious is there's 12 disciples, so each one even gets a little doggy bag to take home with you. But what else was there 12 of? 12 tribes. 12 tribes of Israel. And the five, could it be, that the five loaves represented something that was extremely important to the 12 tribes of Israel, a thing that they have, a book called the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And the Pentateuch, the Torah, was their law, and it was their truth. And the Pentateuch not only established, but defined and outlined their relationship with God. Could be. Of course. The Jewish people have the law. They have the truth. They have the Pentateuch. They have the relationship with God. They're God's chosen people. And then Jesus comes along to the Gentiles. Now, this is where it might be a stretch. I, I am acknowledging this might be a stretch. But this seven... Can I back up? The five loaves, the Torah. In Deuteronomy, it says this. Be careful, he said to the Jewish people, to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live. You follow this. And then two verses later, he says, and Jesus quotes this, man does not live on, ooh, bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Cool. Okay. So now he goes to the Gentiles, and there are seven baskets. This is a stretch, however. When God had given to the Israelites the promised land, in Deuteronomy it says, when the Lord brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, seven nations who are your enemies, seven nations who aren't welcome, seven nations who are not a part of the chosen people, there are these Gentile nations. And as far as this concerned, in the Bible, the number seven, from the seven days of creation in Genesis to the seven seals in Revelation, and all the way through, the number seven always has this picture of finality, completion, perfection, fulfillment. And could it be that this seven loaves is that there's a, there's a fulfillment here when Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And this truth that you've been holding to, Jesus said, 
I am the truth. And that maybe, just maybe, what he's saying is, the two miracles I did, yes, they fed people and they met a need. But there was a meaning so much deeper and you've completely missed it. It's a meaning that will change the world. And that this bread wasn't just some loaves, but that this bread now, this bread now, it's, it's complete, it's fulfilled, it's unlimited. This is, this is amazing. That this bread here, the truth, the law, fulfilled in your midst, and it's unlimited. And could it be that it was more than just a miracle, that there was a deeper meaning, and even beyond this, that it goes a step further, because it pulls the curtain back and it reveals yet again who Jesus is, and it's a prophecy about what he would do, because Jesus himself would say in John chapter six, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. You, you guys are missing this. I'm the bread of life. And then he would go on and talk about their history. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, this gift from God that came down just for the Jewish people every single day. Yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. This is different. We're not just talking about a loaf here. Talking about me. And he would go on. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And then what Jesus says in John chapter 6 upset a lot of people, very bothersome. In fact, a lot, if you read it, a lot of his followers no longer followed him after he said this because it was so troubling. He said, this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the priests. Well, yeah. I'll give for the life of the disciples. Yeah. I'll, I'll give for the life of the Jews. Absolutely. I'll give for the life of the world. This is good news for all of you, everyone. And this is what I'm going to do because Jews and Gentiles have the same need and it cannot be filled with the law. That Jesus would see the desperation of the situation of everybody. He would be moved by compassion to take action on the cross and it would result in a satisfaction. Now, I think that's cool, but we're not done. You want more? Yeah. Okay. So when Jesus gives these guys the quiz, and he says, hey, when I did this, these miracles, I picked up these baskets, how many? You, you remember that whole thing. What's interesting, though, and this is where, where it's, it's kind of frustrating, because we are somewhat limited by the English language in the translations of the Bible. Because when Jesus asks this question, while our scriptures translate them both as the word basket, he uses two different words in the Greek. A tisket, a tasket, he uses two words for basket. In the first one, he says, when the Jews were fed these loaves, how many baskets, the word he uses for basket, is a, it's a small, individual, personal kind of a basket. The best way to describe it is like a lunch pail. And he says to the disciples, when I broke the bread for all of the Jews, how many lunch pails did we pick up? 
They're like 12. Perfect. Each one of you gets a lunch to take home with you. It's great. We're all set up. But when he says it down here and he asks, when I broke the bread for the Gentiles, how many baskets did we pick up? It's a completely different word. And the word that he uses is bitter, bigger than a bread basket. How many baskets did I pick up? He says, there's enough bread for everybody. For so long, you've been thinking, there's just enough for us. You've had this, this scarcity mentality. It's just for us Jews. It's just for us 12 tribes. It's just for, for our Torah. And he says, no, no, no. That's the way it was. Now it's different. Now there is enough bread for everybody. There's an abundance. So he says, we picked up 12 little, little uh, lunch pails for you guys. But with these guys, we had seven shopping carts left over. It was like enough to not only satisfy, but to keep giving to more and more and more. That Jesus being the bread of life, that Jesus is the bread and the basket of abundance. He says, I'm not just for the Jewish people. I'm for everybody, and there's enough for everybody, and enough to go on, and there's abundance. I will give you life, and life in all of its abundance. But wait, there's more. When he fed the 5,000, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, he gave it to the disciples, and everyone was satisfied. When he fed the 4,000, he took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, he gave it to the disciples, and everyone was satisfied. Sounds good. But what if all of that was pointing to something far more significant because the night before he was crucified he sits around a table with his disciples and they're celebrating the Passover and in the middle of the meal while they were eating Jesus took the bread gave thanks broke it and gave it to his disciples, and I wonder if they're going, we've seen this before. I remember him doing this before. Take it, he says. This is my body. That at that moment, Jesus said, the bread and my body, it's broken in order to satisfy. The bread was broken, and they were satisfied. The bread was broken, and they were satisfied. The bread and my body will be broken, and everyone will be satisfied, not just with the satisfaction of a physical hunger, but the satisfaction of the justice against the sins that we would commit, the debt that we would owe. It would be paid on the cross. He would say to Telestai, it has been paid. It has been paid in full. The debt has been satisfied, and not only that, I bring to you that which can only satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. He says to the 5,000 Jews, sit down at my table. He says to the Gentiles, sit down at my table. He says to the 12 disciples, sit down at my table. And he says to every single one of you, I know the desperation of your situation. 
I was moved with compassion that led me to action. Sit down at my table to experience the satisfaction that only I can bring. 700 years before all of this happened, Isaiah the prophet writes these words, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me, hear me that your soul may live. Could it be that what Isaiah was talking about would be fulfilled 700 years ago? It would be a little forecast for the feeding of the Jews and the Gentiles at the Lord's Supper, the manna, the showbread, the, the bread of the presence, all the way through, it's all pointing to the bread of life, Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, when he says, this is how you ought to pray, give us this day our daily bread, yes, it's for our provision, but maybe what he's really saying is, you need to pray every day that you would get more of me. Give me today more of Jesus. More of Jesus, the only one that can satisfy. And Jesus says in John chapter six, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Come to my table and be satisfied. Now, I think that's cool. And that's what we're going to do today. Here in Skagit, we're going to end with communion. And this is what I want you to do. And today, when we pass the communion elements, you know, if you don't feel like you're there to take this, whatever, that's fine. We won't make a big deal of it. But as you take these elements, I'm going to ask you to do two things. When you hold on to this bread and you hold on to this little cup of juice, because Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. And this is my blood of the new covenant. Would you do two things? Today, while you're waiting, would you draw to mind the person in your sphere of influence, when your friends, your family, your coworkers, the person that you would say, if ever I were to say, there's someone who will never come to Jesus, it's this man, it's this woman. And would you pray for that person because Jesus said, I've got all they need. I'm more than enough for them. Would you pray for them by name? And then, before you take the elements, would you out loud, you don't have to scream it, don't use a warehouse voice, but I want you to say it out loud. Would you say this one word? Satisfied. Satisfied. The debt that I owed, it's been satisfied. The longing of my soul, it's only satisfied in Jesus. Jesus.